down trees. The harvestings are going to be up there, moving things around, cleaning up branches. And then within a week, I should have a guy here with a high lift that's going to make that whole hillside there, at least the part that's cleared, is going to become parking. So we'll have double the parking. But as you can see, that's going to create space problems in here. And so we're praying about what the Lord would have us do with that. Um, but with that being said, uh, we do have more chairs, so we're going to add those to the mix. And um, if you know, we're just pray with us on that. You know, we're trying to seek God's wisdom on what to do, and uh, we're very thankful that so many people are hungry for the Word of God, and we're grateful that we get to partner with ministries like we just saw on the TV. Uh, Open the Gates Ministries. Uh, Daniel Messiah has spoken here three times, and during his time here, he he explained to us like he was a Muslim in Egypt that was reached with the gospel by the Spirit of God, and when his life changed, he actually changed his name from Muhammad to Daniel Messiah, which means slave of Messiah or servant of Messiah. And so he was radically changed, and one of the ministries they do is they provide Christmas gifts for Muslims that are Syrian refugees in San Diego. And so uh, as they give these practical gifts to these kids and these families, they celebrate Christmas, and they talk about Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, and so all that to be said, we, we support that ministry, and we share, share the gospel through them by proxy, by uh, financially supporting them, so if you give to this church, that's part of what we do. We always take at least 10% of what comes in here, goes to other ministries that we support, and there's blessing attached to that that we'll never probably see until we get to heaven and get to see the fruit of God's faithfulness through us. And so all that to say, uh, we will be in Genesis in chapter 21 this morning. And I'll get my clicker. Genesis chapter 21. So if you remember where we were in Genesis, um, God has created the world, the heavens, everything in it, and he's created human beings. Uh, man, Adam is the word means man and uh, through Adam he has created this creation that reflects his glory in a unique way that none of the rest of creation reflects and as his creation has been made he then goes in chapter 1 through 11 and shows his interaction with humanity in general and every time God shows his grace to humanity uh, guess what we screw it up to the point that he starts over by flooding creation and, and killing off man who was completely sinful in every one of his thoughts, except for one man, Noah. And through Noah comes his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And those three sons, through them, I just read it this morning, come the, uh, the rest of us. We're all descendants of Shem, Ham, or Japheth. But through the descendant of Shem comes this man who was an idol maker and his name is Abraham or Abram and Abram was a descendant of Terah and he was brothers with Nahor and all the things that you love to read in the Bible the genealogies who doesn't want to read somebody else's genealogy but the reality of it is that we are descendants of these people that we're reading about even in the book of Genesis and so as we see all of these descendants we also see their lives. And what I love about the Bible, and some people don't quite understand, is that the Bible's very, very honest about its character. 
and what we might even call its heroes. So as we look at the lives of these people, we come into contact with not only God's grace in their life, but also their sin. And if you remember a couple of chapters ago, God had told Abram, I'm going to give you a descendants, as many as the sands on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky, I'm going to give you descendants. But the problem was they were barren. And so God said to them, if you will, uh, this is the sign that you will see. Behold, the old woman will bear child. Think about that in context of Christmas that we just celebrated a few weeks ago. Behold, this will be the sign to you. A child will come from a, not a not a barren woman, not an old woman, but a virgin, something that had never been done before. And so God, he relishes in fulfilling his promises in seemingly impossible situations. And as we open up chapter 21 today, what we find is that God completely fulfills all of his promises. So we begin with a birth, Genesis 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah, notice this, this phrase after that, as he had said, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. So he fulfills his word. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Remember, just a chapter or two ago, he said, I'm going to visit Sarah and you guys will conceive by this time next year, when I visit with you, you will bring forth a son. And so Abraham, verse 3, called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. This is important because Abraham's already had a son, right? But what we find out is that that son was not the promised child that God had said he would bring forth. It was a son of the flesh. They decided in a moment of weakness, God's promised us a son, so obviously we must need to do something to help him out to fulfill his promises. And so they, they did what the world does. They said, okay, we'll just get a surrogate, and then God's promise will be fulfilled through our actions. But the problem is, is they had to go outside of their wedlock in order to produce a child, and Abraham did this. His wife said, take my servant Hagar, lay with her, and then she'll bear a son on my knees, and then we'll call it God's plan. And that happens all the time. We try to do something in order to help God do what he doesn't need our help to do. And so as they've produced this child, it's going to produce problems, and sin always does. But Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, not Hagar, Isaac. And the name Isaac was interesting because Isaac means laughter. Isaac means hilarity. And so when Sarah was told you're going to bear a child in your old age, she did what? She laughed. Now, the first time she laughed, she was laughing in skepticism, and she was hiding when she laughed. She was in the tent while Abraham was interacting with these three men that showed up mysteriously. And Abraham laughed like, Oh my goodness, how, God's so good. And she laughed while hiding in the tent. And when he said, why did your wife laugh? Abraham, uh, Sarah said, but I didn't laugh. And he said, no, but you did. You laughed. You think this is impossible. 
But now when Sarah laughs in this passage, she's going to laugh openly, unashamed, and she's going to laugh with ingenuous. She's going to be genuine in her laughter. There's going to be joy in this laughter. So verse 4 says, Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Now, a little sidebar. We don't want to get too far in the weeds. Why did they, why did they circumcise on the eighth day? Well, in the human body, there's this vitamin that's, that's produced into the bloodstream at eight days. Vitamin K. And vitamin K, when it comes into the bloodstream, gives you the ability for your blood to do what? To stab, to coagulate, to, to not bleed out. So you wait eight days, you circumcise your son. God told them on eight days. Did he explain the science behind it? Absolutely not. He said, circumcise your young men on the eighth day. But what we find out later is that the wisdom of God was ahead of science a little bit, just a little bit. And so as they circumcised their children, there would be blood, but it, it, would, it would stop itself. And so God's wisdom is shown in the eighth day. So he circumcised him on the eighth day as God had commanded him out of obedience. Verse five. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? By the way, who did say that? Only God. Nobody else around them was thinking, hey, you're going to have kids. Everybody else would have laughed at the idea and scoffed at it. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. The thing that I thought was impossible, God has made totally possible. And he has done it. No one else could boast about it. It makes no earthly sense. And I love this because when God promises you and I something, it always seems like it takes longer than it should. It always seems like it takes longer than we think it should take. But that doesn't mean that it's impossible. And that doesn't mean it won't happen. But God always comes through. If he promises to do something, he is a perfect father. And he will fulfill it. He's told us that if we do this, then this. Guess what? Do it. It's a, it's a blank check. You can take it to the bank. It will always have sufficient funds. And so typically, he takes way longer than we expect or desire. And this does two things. It prepares us to receive the promise, but it also tests our heart and sees if we're really in it for what he wants to do or if we're going to do our will above his. And then at the same time, it says at the set time, verse 2, at the set time God did this, a.k.a. according to his plan. He had set a time when he was going to do it. It wasn't, it wasn't outside of his purview when it took place. It wasn't because they messed up. He was preparing them to receive the blessing and be able to handle it. So all that to say, who would have said, and here's the baby, and I put this picture here because every picture I found of Abraham and Sarah made them look like ancient and old. And that might have been the case. They might have looked totally 100 years old. But just a couple chapters ago, Abimelech was sending for Abraham's wife. 
So it makes me think that she might have looked a little younger than her age. But all that said, no doubt a baby. And the joy that's attached to new birth. It's, it's interesting to me. You watch grandparents. And, and you watch how they interact with their kids. And then the, the grandbaby comes along. And all of a sudden, they're making the dumb noises again. Boop, 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 boop. You know, and, and I love it because when there's new birth, there's new birth inside our hearts. There's new hope. There's new life. Old people or older people get this like, oh, my gosh, there's a reason for me to exist now. I can be a grandparent. And, and in that existence, all of a sudden, all the things they did for you when you were growing up, no bars hold. Here's all the candy you want. Come to grandma's house. And there's no rules practically. And parents get so frustrated by that. Like, you never let me do that. But that's how it goes. All of a sudden, they're going, all the hills I died on as a parent, I wonder if they really mattered. Because my kids turned out to be turds anyway, and I didn't, <laughs> and I didn't spoil them. Anyway, verse 8. So the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. What does it mean for a child to be weaned? We think about that with puppies. You know, if you're going to give away puppies or sell puppies, like you have to wait until they no longer need their mom before they're separated from mom. And the idea of being weaned, of maturity, is that no longer needing milk from mom, but now able to eat solid food. And I love this because on the day, on, on the, at the time that Isaac was no longer needing milk and he was moving on to solid food, in those days, many times they would breastfeed until about three to four years old, which means at this time, Isaac's three to four years old and Ishmael, his older half-brother, is about 17 or 18. And so there's this coming of age in both child's lives and yet Ishmael's not getting a party Isaac is because he's eating solid food. This is the sign of a healthy child. But it's also the sign of a healthy believer. Because if you turn to Hebrews in chapter 5, there's also something else that we should celebrate. Hebrews chapter 5 in verse 14 says this. Solid food belongs to those who are of Full age. The idea means uh, mature. Solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And that's our hope for our children, right? We, we want them not just to get better at eating food. Judah right now is four and he's telling us how many months until he turns five so he can go to school. And, and if the, the sign of maturity is that he's really good at eating solid food. He was mature a while ago. He's going to be a butterball. He's choking down food. He will not take small enough bites. He's got the hiccups after every meal. But that's not a sign of maturity. That's a sign that you might have a teenager, right? Um, but maturity in the Christian life is not so much just about, well, they went from milk, now they're eating meat, and now they're going to school, now they're learning things. But the maturity in the Christian life is they've, they've partaken of the milk of the word of God. They understand salvation. By the way, salvation is not the pinnacle of all Christianity. It's new birth. If, if your child is born and you go, 
all right, they're born, they're all that they'll ever be. Everybody would look at you and go, they're still sucking on their thumb. They, they can't even make a sentence. They're drooling on themselves. They wake up in the middle of the night instead of going to the fridge and getting some food, they wake up and they cry. And if we did that as adults, people would be like, we need to put him in a care facility. If I was doing that, put me in a care facility. I got problems. But for the Christian life, for whatever reason, we see people get saved and we go, hey, they've arrived. And yet what Jesus is calling us to is to maturity. And when we grow in the faith, when we grow in the grace of God, as we, by reason of use, read the Bible, and we start to learn to apply it to our lives, that's when the party should happen. When your children go from, from going to children's church and, and, and watching Bible DVDs and, and singing praise songs, and then one day they come to age where they go, I feel like this faith needs to be my own. I can't just lean on my parents anymore. I need to take what I'm learning and use it myself and believe in Jesus as a, a disciple. That's when the party needs to happen because that's when they've realized I, I can't be saved because my parents are. Going to church doesn't save me. Uh, saying a prayer at, at camp doesn't save me, but now I need to live with God in my own walk and exercise what he teaches me, and that's when real new life begins. That's when we can recognize that hey, they're, they're making this their own. They're coming of age. They're, they're walking without somebody holding their hand, and that's what Paul wrote to the, the Hebrews, or I believe Paul wrote to the Hebrews, that that by exercising what we learn, we become mature. And we get off the milk and we start to eat red meat, steak. God has steak for you. And some of you are still stuck on the, stuck on the sippy cup. But God wants to feed you the meat of the word. He wants to give you growth and protein uh, so that you can be strong in the faith and so that when 2020 happens, you're not going... And, and crying like you still need a bottle, but you're going, it's okay, God's got it. I understand from his word that he's going to sustain me even in the worst wilderness. He's going to provide for my family. He's going to bolster everything that we do, and it may not feel good, but he's working all things together for good because I love him and because I'm called according to his purpose for my life. This bad thing's going to be good for me. It's like he's sending me to weight training. Except instead of W-E-I-G-H-T, it's W-A-I-T training. 2020 is, it was weight training, waiting on the Lord. Whether it was waiting through quarantine or whether it was waiting, whatever you might have had to wait through. Uh, getting through COVID yourself, personally. Maybe it was a surgery. Maybe it was waiting to see your family because you missed them and they, they wouldn't be around you. Maybe it was waiting to come back to church for a season. All of those things were training us not to trust in whatever we had placed our trust in, but training us to trust God instead of a system, instead of a program, instead of a shot, instead of whatever we trusted in. And so all that to say, uh, God's looking at the maturity of Isaac through the eyes of Abraham, and Abraham is celebrating my child, this, this promised child is weaned, He's, he's on solid food, and Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham. We're hearkening back to this, this act of the flesh. And uh, Hagar 
with Ishmael are scoffing at this celebration. Verse 10, Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Remember, Hagar was actually just a slave of, of Sarai as she had left Egypt the first time they went there. And um, she says, Cast out this woman and her son, for they will not be heirs with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because guess what? He loved this son, even though it was an act of the flesh and it was a consequence of the flesh. He still loves this child. And his wife is saying, get him out of my house. I can't stand him. He stinks. He, he's threatening my own son. He's mocking him. This is my baby. <laughs> and so God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. Husband Abraham, listen to your wife. Interestingly enough, if you look at Genesis 3, Adam got in all the trouble that he did because he listened to his wife. And Abraham even lay with Hagar to produce Ishmael because he listened to his wife. So you might think Abraham might be a little nervous to listen to his wife. Every time I listen to her, I get in trouble. And some of you might even have some instances where you're, I can't listen to my wife. She gets emotional. She makes bad decisions when she's emotional or whatever. But here's the deal. We're to submit to one another in our marriages. Listen to your wives and then pray and listen to God and let him filter through it all. Abraham's feeling like this is the worst plan ever. And then God comes along and says, actually, this time she's got it. Cast out the bondwoman, he says. God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet, verse 13, I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. Abraham, I've made promises to you. And those promises are, are promises that I will fulfill. Remember, he always does. So I'm going to make a nation of this son also because he is your son. And so God makes a promise uh, about Ishmael. So this child of the flesh, by the way, there are two natures in the Christian. There's the fleshly nature of the old life that still tries to rear its ugly head and run things. And there's the spiritual nature. And the flesh always mocks the spirit. And the spirit is always able to overcome the flesh, but we have to submit to God and then resist the devil and he will flee from you. So all that said, the, the advice from Sarah, cast out the flesh. And in the Christian life, we are always to kill the flesh. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, God said, through Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, that if anybody would follow me, he must first deny himself, deny the flesh, take up his cross. The cross was meant to kill the flesh, that killed Jesus, and then follow me. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and come after me, follow me. And so in Galatians, Paul picks up on this particular story in, in Genesis and says this. If you turn to Galatians chapter 4, 
Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. It says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, these were legalistic people. They love rules and regulations, and religious people do. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Sound familiar? The one by a bondwoman, and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise of God, which things are symbolic. See, the Old Testament has all these stories and narratives, and they're all symbolic of the Christian life, and they all point to Jesus. He says these two children were symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brothers and sisters, as Isaac was, are children according to the promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Ishmael persecuted Isaac, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And so we are children according to the promise that God gave to Abraham. We're children of the promise. The promise was that the grace of God. If it was rules and regulations, by the way, Abraham, after he sinned with Hagar, would never have been given the child according to the promise of God through Sarai or Sarah. She, she couldn't have been because Abraham messed up. Abraham sinned against God. Abraham sinned against his wife. Abraham created a child by having an adulterous relationship. Again, I want to point out that it's encouraging to me that when men and women in the Bible sin, that God's grace is still able to abound if they'll repent of their sin, forsake their sin, and move forward trusting in the grace of God to redeem the situation. He redeems it. He says, cast out the woman, the sin itself, and cast out the fruit of the adulterous relationship. And in this case, it happens to be a person, Ishmael. So though Abraham disagreed with Sarah, God then confirms Sarah's wishes. Cast out this child and her mom, but I'm going to bless him by grace because he is your seed. So verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning took bread and a skin of water and put it on her shoulder. And he gave it to the boy, excuse me, gave it and the boy to Hagar, and he sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, remember this. In the context, Abraham's a rich man. He, he's been given cattle and sheep, and he has all this gold, and, and he's doing well for himself. But what does he do when he casts out the bondwoman 
and her son. Here's a loaf of bread, and here's a canteen. Here's some water, bread and water. Why is he doing this? It, did he not think about the fact that they're wandering through a wilderness? Which wilderness we think of like the woods. There's going to be a creek there. They're going to figure it out. There'll be some animals. No, they're crossing the desert. He's sending them out into the, to the desert in the Middle East. Not just like our version of a desert, but some of the worst deserts. He's doing this according to faith. He's not being mean. He's not being harsh. He's trying not to take the provisions that are Isaac's and give them to Ishmael. God just said, I'm going to bless Ishmael. I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to make a nation of him. So if he sends them out into the wilderness or this, this desert, guess what? God's promised to make him a nation. So he's going to provide for him. He's going to make sure. And what we find out is that Abraham, the provisions he sends don't last long. People's provisions for you will never last long. I don't care how good a friend they are. They're going to run out. God's provisions won't. When you trust him, he will provide water. He will provide bread. He, he's promised to provide covering and clothing. And so all that to be said, he, he promised to care for him, so Abraham trusted that promise for Ishmael and Hagar. And so Hagar, as she is heading out, lost my place the water verse 15 in the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs in the wilderness and then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot i don't know about you guys but a bow shot for me is not very far i'm hoping that she was a little bit better of a bow archer an archer that's the word and so uh, a bow shot she didn't want to be near him because she knows he's going to die. She believes he's going to die. And so she distanced, she social distances herself from her son because she doesn't want to hear him die. And as she does this, she went and sat down across from him. And she said to herself, let me not see the death of my son. So she sat opposite him and she lifted her voice and she wept. She did what any mom would do. She cares about her son. He's all she has left. And she weeps. She sits down and she cries. This seems like a story we've heard before. If you remember when she conceived, became pregnant from Abraham, uh, she was treated very harshly by a bitter, barren woman by the name of Sarah. And so she left in a, in a, in a tussle, she was upset. She left and she went to the wilderness and the Lord visits her there and says, hey, go back, submit yourself to your uh, your master. And when you get there, uh, do all that she says. And so she's done this. Now, 18 years later, here's this child and she's going to watch him die in the wilderness like she thought she would before. And as she's there, God heard the voice of the lad and the angel of God called the Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him with your hand, and I will make him a great nation. So interestingly enough, she's in a desperate spot. They have nothing but chaos wandering through this woman's brain. She, she's distressed. She's crying 
And in the meantime, apparently Ishmael was doing something that Abraham had showed him. He was praying, I've heard the voice of your son. And so the Lord responds to this, this lad's voice. So then verse 19, after he said, I'm, arise, go hold him with your hand. I'll make him a great nation. And then verse 19, as she's doing this, God opens her eyes. And she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and he dwelt in the wilderness. He became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So Hagar had named her son, by the way, Ishmael, after the God who heard her in the previous situation. And so here she is. She's in a very similar situation. She's forgotten. Even though she named her son, I've seen the God who hears. Now she's in a spot where she feels like no one hears her voice. God hearkens to the voice of her son. His name's God hears. And God provides for them in the wilderness. And opens her eyes, perhaps even, to see a water well that was already there or miraculously placed there, whatever it was. If you've ever been in a spot, many times God's already provided for you and you're blinded to the fact that he's already done that. So God has to open her eyes. And he see, she sees for the first time this well that sprung up in the middle of the desert. Hagar hears God's voice and sees his salvation. Now, is this salvation Jesus? I believe that it is because Jesus even called himself to the woman at the well. He said, if, if you knew who I was, you would ask for me at this well to give you a drink. And she goes, well, you don't have anything to draw water from this well. And he, he says, whoever believes in me, out of them will gush rivers of flowing water, living water, not physical water, but spiritual water, the Holy Spirit. And so here we have Hagar experiencing this in Genesis. So verse 21 says, He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So we move on from the story of this, this son being cast out. Abraham's been obedient. Abraham's been corrected. Abraham had been forgiven of his sin, by the way. His sin... By laying with Hagar and producing the son, he'd been forgiven of it. But he still had the consequences living in his house. And so God dealt with that. But in verse 22, it says it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Abimelech from a previous chapter was a man that Abraham had lied to. But Abimelech, still watching Abraham dwell in the land of Abimelech, in the south of Israel, looks at Abraham and he watches his life. And he goes, Abraham, I've noticed something about you. God's with you in all that you do. He keeps blessing you. And so he says, um, because of this, now therefore, would you please swear to me, Abraham, by God, that you will not lie to me. You won't deal falsely with me with my offspring, or with my posterity. But 
but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And so Abraham could very quickly here, by the way, look at Abimelech and go, who are you to make to think that I would lie to you? I mean, I lied to you before, and I get that, but shh, I, God's with me. You just said that you observed that. How can you call me still a liar? I've been forgiven. But instead of doing that, Abraham humbles himself. He recognizes that his past is a real thing, that it did happen. And he says to him, I'll swear that to you. You're right. I have lied to you in the past. And, and I will deal uprightly with you from now on. In, in the integrity of my heart and what God's done in my life, I'm going to get right with you. I'm sorry. And so as he says this, uh, he has boldness. But what I want to notice here is that Abimelech's back and he brings up his past dealings with him. Maybe some of you have had people bring up your past to you before. And it's easy to get defensive. It's easy to go, who are you to bring up my past and judge me? But in Christ, you shouldn't be ashamed of your past anymore. It's been forgiven in Christ. Not because of something you've done, but because everything that Jesus has done. So in that, there's a lot of freedom to go, yep, you're right, that was me. <laughs> that was every bit of me. And what you didn't know is way worse than that. That was just a piece you knew. But then he notices that God's with him. And in the life of a believer, people that live around you should notice the fruit of God being in relationship with you. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, it says of those who would be called to leadership in the church, and believers in general, those who are in the church must have a good testimony among those who are outside the faith, lest we fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. That God does, we are forgiven of our past, but God should change our, our testimony amongst those who, that don't believe in God. They should notice a difference. And there's also references to Colossians 4, 5 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 12. But Abraham doesn't deny his past. He owns it. But then he also says in verse 25, after saying, I will swear to this, Abraham then rebukes Abimelech. By the way, Abimelech's the local king. He, he's got power in the area that they're living in right now. And Abraham doesn't have any municipal power. He doesn't have any sway with the local people. But Abraham rebukes Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized from him. He's been stolen from. He's receiving the fruit of lying to Abimelech, and Abimelech's servants see that, and they steal a well from him. They're not being good neighbors. And so Abimelech said, Well, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me about it, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, and gave them to Abimelech. You know, we worry about property lines. Who's using my resources? Who, who's, who's tearing down my fences? Or maybe, who shot a deer on my property? Who was driving down the road and spotlighted? You know, whatever it might be. And that type of stuff wells up in us. We go, I got rights to this property. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to deal with you like you deal, dealt with me. And what Abraham does, instead of talking to everybody else about what Abimelech's people have done, he goes to Abimelech. Like Matthew 18, if somebody sins against you, go talk to them individually. And I don't know 
know about you guys, but I hate controversy. I would much rather be <laughs> passive aggressive. I'm not going to say anything to you, but I'm going to tell everybody else about it. And then later, when you're all bitter about it, because I didn't tell you, and you're, you know that I know, but we're not talking about it, but I know that you know, and drama, we thrive on it. Get over the drama and go talk to the person. Abraham has knelt before God, the king of kings, and he's repented of sin, and he's walking uprightly, and it makes him able to, since he's dealt with the the log in his eye, he's going to go deal with the splinter in his neighbor's eye and go, hey, you've done this against me, and rather me, than me getting embittered by it, why don't we just talk it out? And so he does this. Now, you might think, what's the big deal? Well, uh, in a desert, water's kind of important. It's like gasoline. You know, like, I can't drive anywhere without gasoline. So if somebody shuts down all the gasoline, we're going to be pretty upset about it. And so he says, I need to dig another well. So we need to do something different this time because otherwise I'm going to dig this well and they're going to steal it again. What are we going to do about this? So they decide to make a covenant amongst themselves. And a covenant is an agreement to work together in tandem. But the way they would cut covenant is someone would bring animals and they would do what we all love, cut animals in half, spread them apart, and then the two people making the agreement would walk between those animals together and they'd say, here's our agreement. I agree to this and I agree to this. And if either one of us doesn't hold up our end of the bargain, we'll be like these animals. We'll be cut in half. We'll be dealt with harshly. Uh, it's pretty serious. It's, it's a blood oath, if you will. And, and all that to say, so Abraham makes an agreement with them. Since we're being honest, let's deal with the, the rub we have with one another. And let's make an agreement. And so uh, Abraham took sheep and oxen from his own flock and he gave them to Abimelech and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Well, this is different. This isn't like a normal covenant. So Abimelech asked Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And Abraham said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, the idea is as a gift, that they may be witness that I have dug this well. Every time you look at these lambs from me, you'll remember that I was the one that dug this well. I own it. And as a gift, I'm giving these to you. As they live among you and as you see them, you'll be reminded of them. And then he says, therefore, he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. It means, it means place of the oath. Thus they made a covenant of Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, his commander, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So notice Abraham does not deny or defend himself. They're being honest with one another. They make an agreement together. And then Abraham, to top it all off, gives them a gift. He blesses them. And then just as another reminder, he names the place, place of the oath. So there's three witnesses of this agreement they've made. And then he does something interesting after their interaction. 
and plants a tree. Now, this isn't for landscaping, but he's planting a tamarisk tree. He's learned something new about God in this place. Now he's setting a place for him to remember what he's learned about God. See, Abraham is walking by faith, and every step that he takes, he's still learning about this God that he's in relationship with. And he learns something interesting. He learns that God is the everlasting God. He's the God, and this is the first time that he calls him this in this place. But as he's learned that as he's righteous before God, he can then deal righteously with the people that live close to him. We submit to God. We surrender to him. We have an honest relationship with him. And as a result of that, we become honest with those that we live among. We stop cutting corners. We start being upright before them. And what we learn is from that passage is that Romans 8.31 says that If God is for us, then who can be against us? All of a sudden, the fear of man goes away because we're righteous in God's sight. And then he plants a tamarisk tree as a statement of faith. Now, a tamarisk tree is a slow-growing tree that needs lots of help to grow. But they grow all over in the wilderness. But when you plant a tamarisk tree, you're not planting it so that you can enjoy it. You're planting it so your descendants will enjoy it. Because as it grows, it produces shade. And shade, like water, very helpful in the desert. So as he grows this tree, it's as if he's saying, for generations to come, my family is going to be in this place. This shade is for the generations to come, and I'll never get to use it, which is what God had promised. He said, you're not going to own this land But your descendants will go to a place of bondage for 400 years in Egypt. And then I will return them. I'll deliver them here. When I deliver them here, they will take it over. The people that live here, they'll wipe it out. And so he calls on the name of his God, who has promised to give him descendants, who has also in this chapter given him right relationships with his neighbor. And he calls him the everlasting God. He's trusting that this life that God's given him in this covenant relationship is going to be an everlasting life. And so as he worships, he's doing all these things to remember God's faithfulness. Because Abram, even in his own understanding, is looking back on his own life going, I haven't been faithful to the agreement that God has for me. And so as we get ready to take communion this morning, What I want to show you is that communion is meant to be a place of remembrance, like the tamarisk tree, like the sheep that were given. It was all a witness to something that we're remembering back to. God planted a tree on Calvary. And scripture says, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. And on that tree, Jesus Christ was like the animals. He was bled out to make a covenant an agreement saying I'm going to make this covenant with you if you'll believe in my son then salvation will be yours and this salvation won't be a temporary one it will be an everlasting salvation and so when we take the bread we're remembering Jesus gave his body the the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world 
when we drink the juice, the cup of salvation, instead of drinking the cup of wrath, which we deserve, we get to drink the cup of salvation, the blood of Jesus that cleanses and washes away all of our sins. And it's all symbolic, remembering back to what God did, remembering back to what he did for you and I, specifically as believers, but then also looking ahead to the ways that he's promised to save us practically and then eternally, spiritually. He has saved us. He set us apart so that for all eternity we'll spend it in communion with him. This is not the best meal, by the way. It's just just a foretaste of what heaven is like because we will eat way better bread and we will drink way better wine and, it, and it's all going to be celebrating what God did for us. And we will be unhindered from time. We'll be unhindered from temperature and exhaustion. We'll be unhindered from seeing him. But until then, he says, do this as you often as you drink it, remembering me. No longer do we have to live in shame and remember our past and our sin and all the stuff that weighs us down. For now as believers, that stuff's all been dealt with, and we remember him. We remember his sinless life. And so we take open communion here, which means that if you trust Jesus for your salvation, you call yourself a Christian and you believe that, that he's all you need, then you get to take communion. It's grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. Just like Abraham, I guarantee you, you got some Ishmaels in your past. But if you reckon them dead in Christ, and now you've been brought new and made alive in Christ, then, then you're able to partake this by faith and go, man, I'm so thankful for Jesus. And so Travis and um, Vic are going to come up, and they're going to lead us in a song of worship. And during that time, I want to invite you to the table to grab the elements and then go back to your seat, and then we will take the elements together after that song. But this is just a time for you to meditate on what God has done, not for who's sitting next to you, not for the whole world even, but what has he done for you specifically? And maybe you'll remember some Ishmael's, and maybe that will give you joy because you recognize you don't have to live with the consequences of the Ishmael's anymore, that they're redeemed in Christ. So, Father, we thank you for the time to meditate on you. We thank you for this song of worship that we get to sing to you. And we thank you for the blood and the body of Jesus presented for us for the forgiveness and the removal of sin and for power to overcome. And we just want to spend some time meditating and being thankful for Jesus given to us. In Jesus' name.